Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This week on Viewpoints. You don't have a mirror and you don't have face-to-face contact with other human beings and so you forget how to even make normal facial expressions. The life-changing consequences of living in solitary confinement. Then... For some people, it's peanuts. For a different generation, it might be Calvin and Hobbes or the far side. For a different generation, it was Blondie or Steve Canyon or Terry and the Pirates. The rich history of American comics. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. There's confusion about how to protect yourself from COVID. One thing is certain. Whether or not you're vaccinated, you need an accurate thermometer to check for fever, the leading sign of flu and COVID. Be vigilant and contact your medical provider at the first sign of fever. Don't rely on non-contact thermometers that have no scientific studies. Only the Exergen Temporal Scanner Thermometer has been proven accurate in more than 100 clinical studies. Learn more at exergen.com. It's not magic that will deliver 1 billion packages to homes across the country this holiday. It's the United States Postal Service. And we don't need a team of reindeer to do it, because we've added more vehicles to our fleet. And while we don't come down your chimney, we can pick up presents for you and yours. So if making more holiday deliveries to homes in the U.S. than anyone else seems like magic, that means we're doing our job. Share the magic at usps.com helpers. What do you remember from the first couple months of the pandemic? Millions stockpiled groceries or toilet paper and dove headfirst into new hobbies at home to pass the time. Often, a walk outside was the highlight of the day. For many Americans, as days turned to weeks and weeks turned to months, it was difficult to spend so much time inside and not have the same level of in-person interaction as before. If you thought this experience was trying, imagine spending weeks, months, or even years locked up in a solitary confinement cell. There's no access to the Internet, limited interactions with other people, and sometimes not even a mirror or clock on the wall. For nearly every hour of the day, people live in a concrete box the size of a large parking space. Often... People talk about it being eerily quiet or else you hear echoing sounds like a door sliding open really echoes. (laughs) Most often there's no natural light, maybe sometimes a tiny slit of a window. That's Dr. Karamet Reiter, a professor in the Department of Criminology, Law and Society at the University of California, Irvine. She says that inmates are typically put in isolation because they're deemed to be uncooperative, violent, mentally ill, or need protection from other prisoners. In fact, during the height of the pandemic, the use of solitary was heavily relied on to stop the spread of COVID-19. Experts estimate that up to 300,000 inmates were in solitary confinement for weeks or months at a time. 
while I think we were making immense progress pre-pandemic with reducing the use of these conditions, there's a national stop solitary movement. There has been legislation, litigation, administrative decisions from within prisons to reduce the length of time people spend in these conditions and the number of people in these conditions. All the facilities still existed and they were a natural place to isolate people when COVID outbreaks happened. And so the thing I've heard the most is that in prisons, people were afraid to say when they started feeling bad or they had an exposure because they knew the most likely outcome was they were going to be placed in solitary confinement indefinitely. Close to 2 million Americans lived through the pandemic behind bars. Experts estimate that in typical conditions, around a quarter to a third of prisoners cycle through solitary confinement during their sentence. Some spend years locked up in this harsh environment for minor infractions. There's a growing body of evidence that after even a few days in these conditions, even from experiments in the 70s around military trainings, that sensory deprivation can cause people to hallucinate, have real sleep disturbances, have intense anxiety and heart palpitations within even a few days. And these conditions, right, when we're talking about no access to natural light, fluorescent lights that are on 24 hours a day, no human contact for extended periods, These are very similar to sensory deprivation conditions. In studies people have done, rates of suicide and self-harm in these units are often twice as high or higher than in the general prison population, where, of course, they're higher than in the general population of the country also. Even after people get out of solitary confinement, the mental and physical effects can be lasting. Paranoia, depression, heart damage, and a loss of social skills are just some of the issues reported by prisoners. It's been well studied that thousands of inmates head into jail with mental problems, and these ailments are only exacerbated while incarcerated. Tracy Velasquez is one of these experts. She manages public safety research for the Pew Charitable Trust and is an expert on criminal justice systems and practices. What we've seen is that in terms of arrests, about one in four people who was arrested in the past year, according to the National Survey of Drug Use and Health, about a quarter of those people who were arrested had a mental health issue. They had either a serious or moderate mental illness. And we see this figure sort of go forward into jails as well. Other research by the Bureau of Justice Statistics also says about a quarter, about 26% of people in jails met the threshold for being considered having a serious psychological distress issue. Velasquez says that prisons are legally required to provide mental health care. However, the quality of these programs widely varies from state to state. Some facilities have a large array of resources, while others are severely lacking. One of the keys is really understanding whether someone has a mental illness. And so to the extent that whether it's a jail or a prison, they're really doing the screening and assessment up front to identify these individuals. That can play a big role in helping ensure that they don't end up in these other more harmful situations down the road. Writer says that for inmates in solitary confinement, mental health treatment can often be unhelpful and uncomfortable. If you develop some kind of psychological symptom while you are in these conditions, there's often little recourse to get you out. So they might not even be getting enough care to know. And most often the way mental health treatment is provided in these units is Someone, not usually a doctor, someone like a nursing technician with a little bit of mental health training just stops by the front of each cell door on the unit and kind of taps on the little tiny window and says, hey, how are you doing? 
that means that the person on the salinator side of you and above and below you can hear everything about that conversation. And so people in solitary confinement describe that as a pretty hard way. That's how you would initiate any kind of need for mental health care, and people describe that as being pretty hard to want to do that in that kind of public environment. Outside of healthcare workers, many correctional officers who interact with these inmates on a daily basis get little training or direction on how to adequately handle mental health situations. Generally, in the United States, correctional officers have a few weeks of training at best before they become correctional officers and start walking the cell blocks. And one of the things that struck me spending time in these units is there's often people there who have been so difficult to deal with that they've been sent from forensic hospitals and mental institutions into the state, into the prison system. So you've basically got doctors and nurses who've said, we can't handle these people, and then you send them into a supermax or a solitary confinement unit with correctional officers who've had a few weeks of training and say, you deal with them. And of course, that's frustrating and leads to trouble. Writer argues that there must be more alternatives to solitary confinement in prisons. Mentally ill or challenging populations shouldn't be thrown into these cells to be forgotten. And what happens after release? How are these people expected to become functioning members of society? Velasquez says that some prisons with adequate care systems set up prisoners with a plan before release. Some facilities make sure that they sign them up for Medicaid before they leave the facility so that there isn't a lag there while someone gets out of prison, say, and then has to go find the Medicaid office and fill out the paperwork and then wait. So during those first days or weeks, someone can really decompensate if they don't have access to the medication they used while they were in prison. They don't have access to counseling. So what we're seeing is some correctional facilities have a caseworker who gets that work done for them before they leave so that they can be on Medicaid right when they get out and have that access. Because, as you know, it can be difficult for people to find a job right away and put their lives back together. So knowing that their treatment will continue has been a really important step that some correctional agencies have taken. Looking ahead, both Ryder and Velasquez hope that listeners can have a bit more empathy for this population after living through an isolating and challenging experience like the pandemic. You just look at feelings of isolation many people have had during the pandemic, just having to be in their home and not seeing other individuals. And then you take that up another level to being in a prison environment. And you can definitely understand more how um, harmful these practices can be. To find out more about this topic and our guests, Dr. Kara Mitreider and Tracy Velasquez, visit viewpointsradio.org. For more behind the scenes, search Viewpoints Radio on Twitter and Facebook. This segment was written and produced by Amira Zaveri. I'm Gary Price. Coming up, exploring the cultural tie-in of comics when Viewpoints returns. Welcome to today's Book Minute brought to you by Booktrip.com, the leading source for book news and reviews. Celebrated novelist Mike Bond has been called one of the 21st century's most exciting authors. His recently released historical epic America is the first of a seven-book series that relives our last 70 years and our nation's most profound upheavals since the Civil War. Now through the wild, joyous, heartbroken, and visionary lives of four young people, the story continues in book two, Freedom. From the war-shattered jungles of Vietnam to America's burning cities, near death in Tibet, Peace Marches, the Battle of the Pentagon, 
wild drugs, rock concerts, free love, CIA coups in Indonesia and Greece, the Six Days War, and Bobby Kennedy's last campaign, Freedom puts you in the 60s as if it were now. One reviewer called Freedom the most beautiful prose I have ever read. Read Freedom by Mike Bond, available now online at bookstores everywhere. Whether you're vaccinated or not, it's important to know the symptoms of COVID and its variants. Fever is the leading sign and only the Exergen Temporal Scanner Thermometer has been proven accurate with more than 100 clinical studies. Non-contact thermometers have no clinical evidence behind them and cannot be relied on. Be vigilant and seek medical advice at the first sign of fever. Be accurate with Exergen. Learn more at exergen.com. That's exergen.com. It's not magic that will deliver 1 billion packages to homes across the country this holiday. It's the United States Postal Service. And we don't need a team of reindeer to do it because we've added more vehicles to our fleet. And while we don't come down your chimney, we can pick up presents for you and yours. So if making more holiday deliveries to homes in the U.S. than anyone else seems like magic, that means we're doing our job. Share the magic at usps.com helpers. From Calvin and Hobbes to Batman, comics are an American staple. Whether it's a short comic strip or comic book series, these visual storylines are a medium like no other. They're easy to read and follow, and yet can transport readers to a completely different time and place. Many Americans, even those that might not consider themselves fans of the genre, have fond memories of flipping through the pages of their first comic as children and getting hooked in immediately. Almost everybody I've talked to has some kind of childhood strongly forged connection to comics it could be for everybody it's different right for some people it could be spider-man for other people it could be little lulu for other people it could be archie or richie rich uh for younger people now it could be the graphic novels of someone like Raina telgemeier but everybody has this extremely strong and visceral memory of saying i saw this words and pictures these comics put together and it's stuck with me and it's been formative in my experiences in my life, even just as a strongly remembered emotional moment. That's Jeremy Dauber, a professor of Jewish literature and American studies at Columbia University. He's also the author of the new book, American Comics, A History. He says that comics are so pervasive in American culture because the illustrated storylines appeal to everyone in one way or another. This was part of a lot of Americans, kids, grown-ups, daily routine was they had some comic right they picked up the newspaper in the morning right they read the comics right this was part of who they were and it wasn't surprising that the strips developed to address and think about all sorts of concerns and issues and emotions and feelings that people had in their everyday lives it really was a reflection uh, and remains a reflection of who people are and that is something that makes it so magical so, how did this unique art form of combining pictures and words together come about? Dauber says that world historians don't have a definitive answer about when comics first took form, but in the U.S., this medium is first seen as early as the colonial period. It started off small, slowly gaining traction, and gained larger popularity around the time of the Civil War. That's really when people are beginning to get these cartoons and comics 
in their weekly reading and their weekly enjoyment in a way that really crosses the entire country. And it really takes off around the end of the 19th century with the rise of newspaper chains and syndicates and newspaper titans who want something that's going to really bring readers in, something exciting and visually stimulating that's going to bring readers in. And comics was the answer for that. So that's really when our story takes off. One of the most influential people of this time was Thomas Nast. The German-born editorial cartoonist is recognized today as the father of the American cartoon. He's famous for the creation of Uncle Sam and his bold, politically-driven cartoons that exposed widespread greed and corruption and poked fun at the powerful. Nast was brilliant at the art of cartooning, not only because of the careful draftsmanship and his capability of sort of getting a scene down, uh, you know, in this visual imagery, right? This is when photography is still very much in its infancy. And so, you know, you have these drawings that really tell it. But also, he's capable of creating these incredibly impactful symbols, these icons of cartooning, that really sort of say a lot in a single kind of image. While Nast is best known for his political cartoons, surprisingly enough, he's also responsible for the classic image of Santa Claus. He first drew Santa Claus in January 1863 in the magazine Harper's Weekly, giving the character a long beard and rounded belly. Dauber says that at the time, these characters were often used to spread pro-union propaganda. He was also writing and drawing these cartoons that created a kind of sympathy for the Union at the time of the Civil War because he just was able to put symbolic material and sort of representation in one sort of incredibly powerful package. And comics can do that at their best. Thomas Nast stayed a key figure in the creation of American cartoons until his death in 1902. By then, comics had really taken off as people in rapidly expanding urban areas relied more on newspapers for information. You have a lot of people packing into these cities, some of whom might not speak English very well, but their pennies and their nickels are as good as anyone else's. And these newspaper titans, people like Joseph Pulitzer or William Randolph Hearst, they really wanted to bring as many people to their newspapers as possible, of course. And so they realized that comics which had wonderful pictures, very sort of attractive. They could be attractive to little kids uh, who could convince their parents to buy a favorite paper. They were good for people whose English might not have been quite so strong so that they weren't have to reading so much of the text-heavy aspects of the newspapers. These were great circulation leaders. And so people like Pulitzer and Hearst started using increasingly technologically advanced printing presses to publish comics that had really uh, interesting stories, very funny moments, were wonderfully drawn. And that would say, I want the paper with uh, the Cats and Jammer kids in it, or the Yellow Kid in it, or Blondie in it, as time went on. The popularity of these cartoons stayed constant throughout the 20th century. Illustrated stories broke up the imposing walls of text in newspapers and drew a more diverse audience. As a result, some comics gained such a following that they moved to a serial format that would continue the storyline from one day to the next. There's a very old statement that you're not selling today's paper. They already have today's paper. What you're selling is tomorrow's paper. So a comic was great for this because it said, okay, well, I got to tune in tomorrow to see what the next story, uh, the next installation of the story is going to be. 
Dauber says that some of these already published serial comic strips were later reprinted and turned into the earliest comic books. From there, comic books also became a birthplace of new stories, as superheroes like Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman came to life in the late 1930s and early 40s. Fast forward a couple decades, and the age of superheroes really took off, with influential people like comic book writer Stan Lee driving storylines. There comes a new revitalization of the superhero genre with what comes out of what we now know as Marvel Comics, right? And it is pretty fair to say that the energy of that new revitalization comes from the partnership of two or three people. One of them is Stan Lee, one of them is a guy named Jack Kirby, and one of them is a guy named Steve Ditko. And between the three of them, they have come up with a lot of the people who we're seeing all over uh, sort of the movie screens today. Millions of people today are still drawn to characters like Spider-Man, the Hulk, and Doctor Strange because they're relatable yet exciting. Dauber says that narratives where they have love trouble or can't make rent add another layer of reality to the mix. These kind of concerns made them much more appealing to a slightly older audience, including a college audience, which at that point was quite rare for these kind of mainstream superhero comics. And that really kick-started a new wave in thinking about what this kind of comic book could do. Today, the field of comics has evolved. Comic strip characters like Garfield and Peanuts have turned into TV and film adaptations. Superheroes first seen in comic books are now part of a multi-billion dollar industry. Even physical comic book publishing has moved online, allowing more creators to take part. One of the things that is part of the story of comics, and has been ever since the very beginning, is who gets to make comics, who gets to tell the stories that are in comics, right? And it's been, for all sorts of reasons, the case that not everybody has gotten the same kind of chance. Some of that has to do with structural discrimination. Some of it has to do with the way that institutions worked. For many years, if you wanted to be in the comic book business, you simply had to live near New York City. That was just how the publishing business worked. If you lived in Oregon, you know, you weren't necessarily uh, able to get the assignments and get them in on time to do a kind of monthly comic book. It just wouldn't have worked that way. With the internet and with digital, Everybody has the opportunity to take their work, to take their personal statements, to take their ideas of what a comic should be, and put them out there for everyone to see. The concept and creativity behind comics is quite unlike anything else. And similar to any other industry, it's always changing. To find out more about our guest, Jeremy Dauber, visit viewpointsradio.org. You can also find his new book, American Comics, A History, available online and in bookstores now. This segment was written and produced by Amira Saveri. Studio production by Jason Dickey. I'm Marty Peterson. Viewpoints returns in just a moment. Who brought the sauce? I brought the sauce. Who made the sauce? I made the sauce. What's in the sauce? I am the sauce. Who brought the sauce? <gasps> Spilled the sauce? Quick, the quicker picker-upper. Bounty picks up spills and messes quicker. And each sheet is two times more absorbent, so you can use less than the leading ordinary brand. Who brought the sauce? I brought the sauce. Who made the sauce? I made the sauce. What's in the sauce? I am the sauce. Who brought the sauce? Okay. 
Bounty, the quicker picker-upper. It's not magic that will deliver one billion packages to homes across the country this holiday. It's the United States Postal Service. And we don't need a team of reindeer to do it because we've added more vehicles to our fleet. And while we don't come down your chimney, we can pick up presents for you and yours. So if making more holiday deliveries to homes in the U.S. than anyone else seems like magic, that means we're doing our job. Share the magic at usps.com helpers. Welcome to Culture Crash, where we examine what's new and old in entertainment. Science fiction is a genre that seems to lend itself especially well to the anthology format. For generations, versions of The Twilight Zone have enticed audiences with glimpses at what the world could look like in the future, and a similar format was adopted by the UK Channel 4 and Netflix series Black Mirror, which has boomed in popularity over the past few years, with episodes that revolve around a technological development that often, or maybe always, points society in the wrong direction. Now, Amazon is offering a similar series of speculative fiction anthology entries for readers. In a series of six short novellas that collectively make up what Amazon calls the Forward Collection, notable authors take their stabs at predicting the future within the realm of fiction. Authors including Blake Crouch, Veronica Roth, Andy Weir, and more have each written stories that vary in length from 27 pages to 74 pages. Roth's installment tells the story of a researcher helping prepare for a mass exodus from Earth as an imminent comet strike threatens to wipe out the planet's ecosystem. Crouches tackles a video game developer who grows obsessed with one of her characters. Each of the six stories can be easily digested in one sitting, much like an episode of Black Mirror, and Amazon even offers audiobook versions, so you can listen to them on a run or a bike ride or just a long drive. There's something undeniably fun about looking through someone else's eyes at where the future might take us. It's long been the appeal of shows like The Twilight Zone and Black Mirror, and now Amazon is giving readers a similar experience by way of the written word. It's a cool experiment that serves to highlight some of the exciting names working in fiction and offers some bite-sized entertainment that can be consumed in a marathon afternoon or over the course of six evenings. The Forward Collection is available as both ebooks and audiobooks on Amazon.com, and the collection is offered for free to Amazon Prime members. I'm Evan Rook. There's confusion about how to protect yourself from COVID. One thing is certain. Whether or not you're vaccinated, you need an accurate thermometer to check for fever, the leading sign of flu and COVID. Be vigilant and contact your medical provider at the first sign of fever. Don't rely on non-contact thermometers that have no scientific studies. Only the Exergen Temporal Scanner Thermometer has been proven accurate in more than 100 clinical studies. Learn more at exergen.com. It's not magic that will deliver one billion packages to homes across the country this holiday. It's the United States Postal Service. And we don't need a team of reindeer to do it, because we've added more vehicles to our fleet. And while we don't come down your chimney, we can pick up presents for you and yours. So if making more holiday deliveries to homes in the U.S. than anyone else seems like magic, 
that means we're doing our job. Share the magic at usps.com helpers. And that's Viewpoints for this week. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more about upcoming shows and find a library of past programs on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and more information about our guests at viewpointsradio.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Viewpoints.